You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The debate over taxes, the debate over infrastructure, and privacy. We talk Google, Facebook, and Apple. Ed Harrison, welcome back. Yeah, we're getting the band back together again here, Ash. Absolutely, man. It's like the old days. Take me back to 2020. Yeah, uh, and, and hopefully in a good way now since we're moving forward. 2020 was a bad year, but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we were talking offline. A lot to talk about today. Um, where do you want to start? Yeah, that is a good question. Where do we start? Uh, we, let's start with the less contentious issues. Um, actually, you know, the least contentious issue is probably Tesla, which we were just talking about. They came out with their earnings. I don't know if you have any views on that, but uh, Tesla, I looked at the earnings. I think they came out with 1039 on the revenue. Uh, they beat on the uh, on the earnings number. But really, you know, it, it, the EPS was 93 versus a 79 forecast, 80 forecast. It, it all depends on what uh, number you're looking at. But the, I'm sure the whisper number was higher and the revenue beat wasn't really that good. I saw a number that showed that the revenue didn't beat. It'll be interesting to see how the markets uh, react to the numbers. What, now, you're obviously talking about this on a per share basis. What are the totals here? Uh, what's the revenue? What are the earnings? Uh, and what's it doing to the PE? Yeah, so the number that I'm looking at is that non-GAAP, remember this is a non-GAAP earnings per share, was $0.93 cents versus a consensus of $0.80 cents or $0.79, depending upon what number you're looking at. The EPS, this, this non-GAAP number, uh, is up 304% year over year. And then when you look at the absolute revenue numbers, it's $10.39 billion versus, according to CNBC, $10.29 billion estimated. But I saw on LiveSquawk that they were saying that the estimated the expected uh, revenue was going to be $10.41. So they missed, according to LiveSquawk, on, on the, uh, the revenue. Yeah. Uh, and still, you know, obviously, this is a company that's priced quite rich. I'm bringing up the summary statistics right now. Uh, so on a on a on a PE ratio, uh, it's like 1153. Right. Yeah. Um, so they they've got a high hurdle to hit, and I think you know it it sort of segs into how I'm thinking about the market overall. You know, because when I'm looking at uh, the the numbers for the market overall, I'm thinking about the S and P 500. Over uh, the shorter term the time frame since the uh, reopening uh, or, or since the bottom in March and then over the longer term. So I have a chart, actually, which shows the S&P 500 over a five year time frame. And then you can draw a line that shows the, you know, the uh, the pace of growth in the S&P 500, which is up and to the right. But if you do it from the bottom uh, from March of 2020, it's a much more aggressive upslope. So what we've seen basically is is a market that was trending up over a longer period of time, but then off the bottom just like kinked upwards massively. And so what that's telling you is 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 that if you 
over the medium term, say the next three, six, nine months as we re fully reopen, numbers like the ones that we saw at a Tesla are not necessarily going to be enough. You know, whisper numbers might be higher uh, in order to sustain the momentum that we've seen in U.S. markets. And I'm thinking in particular about Europe as a result of that. And we can get more into that later in the discussion. Yeah, but just to give us a little more color on that, what's the significance of the phenomenon uh, that you've just described and what does it portend potentially uh, for future movements? Yeah, so we see a lot of analysts now talking about a, 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 um, a pullback, either you know a consolidation at this level or an absolute pullback based upon the fact that we haven't had a, uh, you know, a pullback in a long period of time and also based upon the fact that the momentum is so uh, high to the upside at this point in time. And, and so the, the, the worry is, is, is that the pullback could be great uh, as opposed to you know, just a small pullback. The interesting bit is, is also there's a lot of data around this with regard to excessive bullish sentiment. For instance, I was looking at something that David Rosenberg was uh, putting out, and I'm going to speak to him tomorrow uh, in a video that's going to come out later this week. He said that the asset mix, the Barron's big money poll in this week's uh, issue, it showed you that we're in a very risk-on environment. He said that money managers were 67% bullish versus 54% only in the fall. The bears were only 7%, whereas they were 13% in the fall. And then wow. when you look at uh, the PE multiple, we're at a 21-year high of 23 times for the forward PE. And mm -hmm. the asset mix that these guys put together uh, in aggregate was 67% equities, 17% bonds, 7% cash. So when you think about the 60-40 portfolio, it's much more weighted to equities than it is to bonds. So they're negative on bonds, they're bullish on equities, and the overall bullish sentiment is at record levels or levels that you probably don't want to see. So all of that points to potential downside risk. I mean, those are impressively bullish numbers in terms of just the, the deviation from, from the norm. Yeah, I mean, re uh, really impressive. And, you know, one thing that I, I didn't say in terms of the mix that I believe I'm looking 8% for real estate, 5% for gold, um, you know, so there are other things in the equity in the the basket uh, uh, that this uh, group came up with, but sixty seven percent equities at a minimum is seven percent overweight. Even if you're only talking about a sixty forty portfolio, you're assuming that uh, you know the rest of the portfolio is cutting into the bond section, and that only seven percent extra is going to equities. But bonds are only at seventeen percent. So a relative ratio of 67 to 17 is so out of skew compared to a traditional 60-40 portfolio that would tell you that, you know, if you believe in any sort of contrary signal, uh, there you have it. And uh, on the backdrop of, you know, this, you know, this hockey stick up, you know, we're in a challenging position uh, with regard to that. Yeah. So, Ed, how do you think about the implications? How do you think about what it means for the future? Uh, and how do you think about timing on something like this? Or how to interpret or even begin to think about timing? Well, you know, this is where the whole European side comes into play. And also, it's where taxes come into play. Right. I think, um, you know, one of the, I, I sent you another chart earlier today that I thought was interesting in terms of thinking about 
taxes and deficits. And uh, the, it's a whole philosophical argument about how you get there. The, if you look at the United States as an example, the desire or the ability, the willingness to deficit spend is much greater this particular uh, business cycle than it's ever been uh, right. for, for decades. Just as a comparison, take a look at the deficits between 2000 and today, you know, the, the 21st century, and you and the chart that you see shows uh, the deficits for 2020, uh, order of magnitude higher than anything that we've ever seen. So if you think about the great financial crisis and the, the desire to deficit spend, it was uh, much greater in 2020 than it was in uh, 2008. Uh, the, the question then is going forward, how's that going to look going forward? Because we know that between 2010 and 2016, we had a record uh, fiscal consolidation in the United States. That uh, I don't have the chart here for you, but I put it in my post and credit write downs earlier today, that the post-crisis fiscal tightening, that is the change in the structural budget the structural government balance as a percentage of GDP from 2002 six, 2016 was 6% in the US. It was only, say, 5% or a little bit less in uh, Spain, 4% in, in the UK. It was 3.5% in France. You know, it was as little as 2% in Canada. So between 2010 and 2016, on a relative basis in terms of fiscal tightening, the change in the structural government balance, the U.S. was king. So when you think about austerity, people don't realize that the adjustment the U.S. made was massive. And that was partially responsible for, uh, you know, the so-called secular stagnation. The question now is, after such a massive increase in the deficit, what's going to happen next? Are we going to see the same sort of consolidation or are we going to see a willingness to deficit spend? I think when we see the taxes going up, as we've been discussing for the last two or three episodes here on uh, the Real Vision Daily Briefing, you know that there's a great discomfort with the level of deficit spending that we're seeing right now. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Right. And that's such an important point. And it's a pivot point from these longer term structural issues into what's happening in the news cycle right now uh, and why it's so significant as a potential pivot point for where we are heading in the future. Let's shift gears here and talk a little bit about where we are in this great tax debate here in the United States, the bigger picture, what the significance is, and how you understand it. Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of it that is very political. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, it starts with the midterm elections. Uh, basically, if you think of it, not just in terms of let's get the economy a jumpstart and, you know, let's replace incomes for people while they're getting their selves back on the feet, but more from a partisan perspective, how do we make sure that this, uh, this stimulus sticks until 2022? We, the party in power, the Democrats, um, how do we make sure that happens? Well, the answer is deficit spending. 
but they're not going to be able to get away with the level of deficit spending that we've seen in 2020. And that's where the tax increases come into play. So I think that uh, really what you've got to see is you've got to think about Joe Manchin in particular. I think it was really interesting that there was an article uh, that came out in Political talking about Joe Manchin yesterday. He was out saying that, hey, this $600 billion infrastructure bill that the Republicans have proposed, I kind of like this. I think the exact quote that he said uh, on CNN, uh, their State of the Union with, with Dana Bash, is he said, it's a good start. He said, it really is, and I'm glad they did it. Meaning, I'm glad that the Republicans made a counter of $600 billion to $2.2 trillion. And then he also said that he supported the effort to work on traditional infrastructure separately from other issues. What does that mean? That basically means Joe Manchin saying that in a 50-50 divided Senate, I, as a Democrat, am not on board with $2.2 trillion. Okay. So if you want to spend tons of money and then uh, you know get some taxes, tax back some of that, I'm not on board with that. You're going to have to uh, not even getting into the tax part of it. You're going to have to reduce the amount of stimulus that you have. And then we can talk about the tax part in a little bit. So that's where we are for the Democrats. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. Uh, Joe Manchin uh, down in West Virginia obviously plays a, a kind of a pivot role, a swingman role. Uh, he's in this unique position uh, of obviously being the most conservative member who's caucusing with the Senate Democrats. Uh, so he has this kind of unusual, almost kingmaker status. We should say, obviously, 50-50 divided Senate uh, tiebreak vote goes to Vice President Kamala Harris, obviously a Democrat. Uh, so that does give them a little bit more leverage. But, you know, in the Senate, these votes really matter. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. And so uh, when you say kingmaker, 100 uh, percent, there's no way that this two point two trillion dollar bill can pass without Manchin. And there's no way that Manchin's going to go with it. So it's dead on arrival. Six hundred billion dollars. That gives you the window that we're working within. And then we have to think about the taxes. So, I, you know, when I showed you the chart showing off the, the chart numbers, for 2020 in terms of deficit spending, obviously, if you're going to have even more spending, some of that's going to have to be recouped via taxes. And the question is, is how are you going to do that? What the Biden administration decided they're going to do is they are going to shift the burden of taxes to make it much more progressive. A lot of people don't know this, but the United States has one of the most progressive tax uh, rate structures in uh, the advanced world. And he's looking to make it even more progressive. Let me give you an example. This was from Politico. Uh, what Politico said is that the this is a congressional committee, the Joint Committee on Taxation. They've done a study based upon the numbers that the Democrats have been putting out. And the bill that the De Democrats got passed in uh, March, they say that people who make between seventy-five dollars and $100,000 will pay an average that's not the you know marginal tax rate, but an average uh, taxation level of 1.8%. And then two thirds of all income will be paid by those who make $500,000 or more. So that, that gives you a sense of you know, how, how progressive uh, things are. But the Biden administration would like to make it more progressive. And we talked about this, um, this uh, uh, 
the the long-term capital gains tax. What they're proposing is doubling the rate from 20% to 39.6% for any uh, uh, long-term capital gains over $1 million. What that basically means is, is if you uh, you know, make more than a million dollars in capital gains, any amount over that million will be taxed at the 39.6% rate. The others will be taxed at the lower rate. Uh, and uh, they also want to increase the uh, top rate for personal income from 37% to 39.6%. That's the marginal rate. And right. uh, before I send it over to you, let me just mention that I'm mentioning marginal rates because people keep on talking about it in the comment section as if we don't, you and I don't know about marginal rates. But it's important to talk about marginal rates versus average rates because of the cliff. Uh, the reason that you tax uh, at specific levels above a certain amount is, is because you don't want to create the perverse incentive where I don't want to go over a certain amount in terms of income. I have to hide my my income or do right. something to, to get down below because suddenly when I go over that level, every single dollar that I, I, I've been uh, making is taxed at a new higher level. So to avoid that problem, people are taxed in brackets. You're taxed in this bracket at this level. You're taxed at a higher level in a different uh, bracket of income. So that's why marginal rates matter. Yeah. And the simplest way to think about this is you don't want to wind up in a situation uh, where you make less money getting paid $101 for a job uh, than $98 for a job, right? Because if that happens, you set up all kinds of perverse incentives uh, and there's potential economic impact. Before we get back to some of these definitions, because I think it's so important, um, let me just give you a quote here from a Bloomberg article uh, called Biden's 1970s era tax plan collides with GOP and salt rebels. To me, this is really the, the core of progressivity uh, in terms of uh, in terms of what's happening on the capital gain side. Quote, 62 percent of all reported capital gains went to taxpayers making one million dollars or more in 2018. But that figure rises upward to 70 percent in Nevada, New York, Connecticut and Florida. This is overwhelmingly skewed uh, to the highest earners. Uh, and, you know, if people are listening to this and they think, well, it, you know, it only impacts a small percent of the population. While that may be true, it also represents a substantial, a massive, I think it's fair to say, percentage of the total investment. So when those rates change, specifically if those rates double, do we have to worry about the significant impact on the ability to fund the critical economic activities that take place in the United States. Yeah, so I mean, uh, when you, I'll just say straight out, when you go from 20 to 39%, that's a massive amount of uh, change, doubling yeah. the rate. I don't think, I think that's a deal breaker. Joe Manchin, he's not going to get on board with that. Very likely, you're not going to see 39.6%. I would say, and, and I talked about this to Jack on Thursday, that it makes a lot of sense to have the exact same rate for personal income taxes you have for capital gains out of a sense of fairness, because it allows people, irrespective of how they earn their income, to be taxed at the same rate. But just from a pure politics perspective, you're just not going to get there. It's just yeah. too much of a, a, an increase. It won't happen. Uh, and and so I think that you know maybe we'll see something like thirty percent. I think it we will see an increase in the capital gains tax, but it w it won't be to thirty nine point six percent. 
Yeah, and of course, the now, flip side to that argument is that that you know, if you have people who are uh, earning ordinary income from wages, uh, as uh, most of us do, uh, versus people who are generating money from capital gains, uh, generating income from capital gains, that it's a disincentive to investment to tax it at the same rate, or so goes the argument. Right, and and, and what's more is, is remember when we talk about average tax rates versus marginal rates, there's a huge uh, exemption you know, for uh, individuals in the personal income bracket that you don't have with regard to capital gains. So as right. I said, 1.8% average tax for someone making between seventy-five dollars and $100,000. Why is that? That's because, you know, they have exemptions for property uh, taxes. Uh, they have a high personal exemption. All these kinds of things add right. up, uh, you know, earned income tax credit, uh, et cetera. So, so that makes the, the effective rates considerably lower. Exactly. Now, the interesting bit about what you uh, pointed out was you're talking about an article that was about salt, because this is where the politics gets a little bit more interesting in terms yeah. of dealing with this uh, as we head towards the midterms. Um, the salt states in the 2017 um, uh, tax reduction bill, uh, they got rid of they capped uh, the ability of you to take your state and local taxes and uh, be able to apply those to your federal taxes. So let's say property taxes, sales taxes, things of that nature, uh, you can deduct those against your federal taxes and lower your overall tax bill. Um, but now it's, it's, it's capped. And in fact, when you do the math, only 17% of people are going to be eligible for what we're talking about. Those are going to be the richest people. And it's disproportionately in certain states. The states where it's the biggest is California. I think 20 percent, over 20 percent of the people who have SALT deductions, 21.1 percent are California. The next biggest state is New York, 13.2 percent. So right there, you have a problem for the Democrats because the Democrats are like, wait a minute, we're high tax states anyway, and you're going to increase the capital gains tax. You're going to be taking people up to 50 percent marginal tax rates, they're going to leave California, New York, and, and move to Texas and Florida because you're doing this. You have to do something about SALT if you're going to do this. We are not going to play ball, we, the representatives rep in the states of New York and California, unless you help us in some particular way. Yeah, and intriguingly, of course, those are mostly Democrats. Exactly. So. The, the the Democrats only have seven uh, votes in the uh, in the House. It's a, a dead heat in the uh, the Senate, and so as a result, what you see therefore is that uh, you know there's going to be some gamesmanship. There's going to be some you know uh, horse trading. We're not going to get massive stimulus. It's not going to be massive de deficit spending. Once once the pandemic's over, 2020 is not going to be repeated. That's the the long and short. So going back to our original conversation, what that means is at the margin, uh, fiscal policy will be less accommodative uh, at the end of this year and in 2022. It will still be accommodative, but it will be less accommodative. Yeah, at the margin, a reduction in the level of accommodation in fiscal policy, an incredibly important point. Exactly. And I think that you probably have the same thing in, uh, in uh, monetary policy. So we have the Fed meeting this week. They're going to come out and tell us what's going on. Are you guys going to taper? When are you going to taper? What's the uh, 
the timetable for you to say when you're going to stop your massive asset purchase program. Maybe we'll find something, some new information out. Most people don't think that we will, but there's a lot of pressure and it's going to grow as the year goes along on the Fed, given the asset price inflation that we've had and the likelihood of more consumer price inflation. The, the, the pressure grows in the Fed to withdraw some level of accommodation. And so I think also on the monetary side, in the U.S., we're going to see at the margin lower monetary policy accommodation. So we'll end the year with less fiscal and less monetary policy accommodation in the United States. Yeah. So Ed, to shift gears here a little bit, something else we've been talking about, privacy, Google, Facebook, and Apple. Yes. Uh, so, um, and you know, by the way, I still want to come back to Europe and why I think that Europe is more interesting. Uh, but we can come back to that. Let's, at the let's end. hit that first, Ed. Let's talk about that because that really is uh, very much uh, something that's uh, a metaphor for the things that we're dealing with here in the states as well. Yeah. So basically, my 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 uh, long-winded point of this all this whole uh, tax diatribe is that the United States we've had all the gains. If you if you looked at the chart of what European shares look like over the past uh, 12 months, and you compare that chart, we have a chart from Goldman on that, with US shares going up and European shares being relatively flat, uh, it's already priced in in the US, the, the reopening. It's not priced in in Europe, and we have less accommodation in the US going forward. And given the high bullish sentiment in the US, there's the potential that you're going to have a pullback. All of that says the risk of downside uh, moves in the U.S. are greater than they are in Europe. If you had to reweight, you would probably want to reweight towards Europe, which is now reopening, going mm. from 5% vaccination to 20% vaccination today, and then 50% by mid-year. So they are reopening quickly, not as quickly as the U.S., but by mid-year, uh, they're going to be ready for business. You probably want to reweight to Europe as a phrase I haven't heard a whole lot lately. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, but I think that the downside risk in the U.S. is enough that it's something to consider. Yeah. And what does that say, Ed, potentially for currencies? I think that when you look at the currencies, we're already seeing the moves in the currencies that the United States, uh, really DXY, which is mostly a European uh, Euro, uh, U.S. Euro cross, is uh, is is falling. It's uh, below 91, I believe, right now. The U.S. dollar is at uh, 120, uh, almost 121 versus the euro. Let me take a look at these levels here. Um, uh, I see 90 spot or on DXY. Exactly below 91 DXY. Uh, euro USD. Uh, David Rosenberg says the uh, Fibonacci retracement is at 120.97. We're just below that level at 120.87 on my screen. And he says then you can get up another cent. So there's, there is momentum behind the euro. And over the past 12 months, actually, as it stands today, uh, the dollar is lower against 15 of its 16 major currency pairs. So the dollar is weak. And uh, when you look at the backdrop that I'm talking about, it's likely to get weaker. Uh, and when you think about it from a currency translation perspective, that makes it even more compelling if there's downside risk to uh, equity markets in the U.S. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. So, Ed, and that does bring us back to the United States and talking about this. Obviously, the technology sector, a huge component of what makes the U.S. economy so competitive uh, and brings in a tremendous amount of growth. This is potentially, potentially a major shift uh, in the way that the technology business works. Let's talk a little bit about what Google and Apple are doing. Yeah, so I think uh, that's a good segue there in terms of thinking about the U.S. being overweight technology because uh, both Google and Apple are doing some uh, some funky stuff with privacy. Uh, they're touting privacy initiatives. Apple is saying that uh, they'll let people opt out of the ability to be targeted uh, specifically as, you know, micro-targeted as specific individuals with uh, cookies. Uh, Google is using Chrome to also eliminate uh, individual targeting, trying to make it so that you know, it, it, it's aggregate level targeting rather than specific uh, individual targeting. So if I go to Bloomberg.com, uh, as an example, I would be considered a finance uh, guy. You might serve me a finance ad. If I go to People.com, I get served a celebrity ad, uh, something like that. It has nothing to do with me as an individual. It has to do with my part of a cohort of, of, of people. I don't think you spend a lot of your time on people.com. <laughs> no, but you know, actually, my mother-in-law, she gets people whenever we go visit her. I love to uh, to read, you know, uh, who's the sexiest man alive and, and things like that. It's very interesting stuff. Not a member of Real Vision staff? <laughs> no, apparently not. Uh, although uh, uh, Jack Hollywood Farley, you know, some people might say that he's, he's moving up in, in the game there. He's the one competing um, for sure. <laughs> but, but, you know, in, in all seriousness, I think that when I look at these, um, uh, these uh, privacy things, I think back to the pre-internet world uh, because there was no uh, micro-targeting in the pre-internet world. When you uh, open your television set uh, to just, you know, over-the-air broadcast or you open up your newspaper they don't know who you are. They can't target you. So everything is is at that that sort of you know non granular level. What Apple and Google are doing is potentially sending the internet back uh, more towards that paradigm than the paradigm that we had before. And yeah. before I send it over to you, Ash, in terms of your thoughts, I think that the biggest loser there is Facebook yeah. because. Facebook is the is the business of the big tech companies that is most dependent upon micro targeting in order to get revenue. Uh, Apple doesn't even need advertising revenue. That's not their business model. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right, Ed, is the question of at the margin, who are the winners and who are the losers uh, in this game? And I think you're absolutely right. Apple makes money uh, selling us whiz-bang products, right? They make money physically selling us hardware and some software as a service. Their services revenue at Apple has been increasing uh, over the years, uh, slowly but surely. They obviously create content now uh, in the form of Apple TV, their cloud services. Uh, but they have a tremendous, tremendous revenue base uh, that comes from selling us um, you know, phones and computers and uh, and hardware. Uh, and that's a business that seems, uh, to me at least, to be much more defensible 
uh, in terms of the moat, in terms of the model, uh, and in terms of the ability to control your own destiny. I want to throw out two numbers here that I think are just absolutely striking. Uh, and uh, these are 10-year blended averages, so I wouldn't take them too precisely, but it gives you a ballpark sense uh, of where these companies are at. Google makes roughly 70 cents on the dollar uh, from advertising revenue. That is considerable. We think of Google as a company that does uh, all of these incredible moonshot technologies, and certainly they do that. Uh, but 70% of, of their revenue comes from advertising. Facebook, based on the data on Statista.com, 98% roughly of their revenue comes from advertising. Facebook, while we think of it as a whiz-bang tech company, it's an advertising platform. Right. I mean, that's that's amazing. So now uh, think about you know the U.S. indices, uh, their vulnerability to a runoff, and then think about the overweight in all the indices, including the S&P and the NASDAQ, to these three companies uh, that we're talking about. Uh, what you're talking about are massive companies, you know, with trillion dollar market caps who also have, you know, massive P.E. ratios. And in order to live up to those P.E. ratios, they need to have the growth and earnings that are com that's commensurate with that level of, uh, of P.E. Now, I know we're talking about the age of, you know, the exponential age and all of that. And it's a new paradigm, but there is downside risk there. And so. To me, Facebook with the 98% has the greatest downside risk. Apple, yeah. which doesn't get a whole lot of revenue from advertising, they actually almost want to go against uh, the granular level of advertising that we have. They want to show that they're against uh, these anti-privacy activities because that makes their ecosystem that much stronger. Yeah. And we should say that both of these companies have uh, PEs in, uh, in the 30s, uh, Apple and Facebook. Right. And uh, I think that those that's in a historically high level, and that makes them vulnerable. So the the, the last bit is, is in terms of the order of vulnerability being Facebook first, Google second, and then Apple last. I would say that Google, interestingly, is in the uh, the seat of the unknown because first of all, they control one of the two operating systems for mobile. They also have Chrome, which is where they're making their, pri their pro-privacy initiative. Uh, and also, they get most of their advertising revenue from a vehicle which is automatically targeted. Uh, when you do search advertising, you know, if I'm looking for a garden hose, uh, you know, all of the ads are for garden equipment and garden hoses. That's a pretty targeted uh, search already. They don't need right. to know you know, how much money I make, where I live, and all these other things to yeah. be able to really get at uh, what I'm looking for. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly enough, Google actually has a pretty good OS uh, for laptops and desktops, uh, Chrome OS, which works pretty well, but it's not uh, it's not part of the the general revenue generation, and that's the that's the challenge. Is the you know you have these uh, particularly Google, you have this incredibly innovative company that is creating these really cool products. Uh, but if seventy percent of your advertising is coming from revenue, uh, you have to ask yourself about the robustness uh, and the diversity of those revenue streams. Yeah, and so for me, I think that it's just another uh, an illustration of why. Uh, we're at a sort of a, a, a turning point here now. As we approach the reopening in the United States, people are going out. Uh, you know, the planes are full. If you want to go to Cancun, you want to go to Miami, you know, people are having a great time. They're living it up. 
Uh, but that's where the greatest risk is because we're at maximum bullish perspective at this particular juncture. And so uh, if you want to play that, you don't necessarily have to play it to the downside. You, you can play it in terms of a rotation. Where are the upside opportunities? And the upside opportunities may lie outside of, at least temporarily, outside of the United States. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Ed, final thoughts. We've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, what would you like to leave the viewers with? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, if you're a buy and hold investor, none of that makes it, uh, any difference whatsoever. And if you're someone who's thinking about the economy, uh, it doesn't make any difference. Really, from an economic perspective, I'm pretty upbeat about uh, what we're seeing now and what we're probably going to see over the next three to six months. In the United States, I don't think that there's the real possibility of a downturn in 2021. So probably you're looking for growth through this year, most of next year. Uh, so it's it's all looking good. We just need to get over the hump with the vaccinations. And uh, I think that uh, I'm very positive. Yeah. And we have to do this more often. I'm going to raise my game to get on camera with you. <laughs> good well yeah let's let's ask people to get us in the rotation we'll, we'll try it again next time yeah getting the band back together thanks for joining us ed thanks ash thanks for watching everyone You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.